I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. My guest today is Emily Cook. But before Emily and I begin talking, I just want to say how pleased I am to be a member of LitHub Radio. LitHub Radio, if you don't know it, has some of the best podcasts on books that are around. All you have to do is go to lithub.com, and not only will you find podcasts, but you'll find all the great literary news and reviews and feature articles about some of the most important books being published today. I would also like to thank Shelf Awareness for Readers, for helping to promote podcasts that appear on LitHub Radio. Shelf Awareness for Readers is a marvelous email that goes out once a week to book lovers all across America. And all you need in order to be able to make sure that you receive this email is go to your local independent bookstore and ask them if they provide Shelf Awareness for Readers. And if they do, just sign up for it. Or you can go to Shelf Awareness for Readers and sign up on your own as well. Some of the great bookstores across uh, this country do Shelf Awareness for Readers. Bookstores like Square Books in Oxford, Third Place Books in Seattle, and I could go on and on and on. There are some marvelous indie bookstores out there, and I'm sure one of them is the bookstore that you go to as well. But my guest today is Emily Cook. And, you know, one of the questions that I'm asked more than anything else as a bookseller is, how do you find out about all the books that you carry in this store of yours? Because as we all know, there are over 200,000 books being published each year. And we can, you know, there's no bookstore big enough that can actually carry all of them, except maybe Powell's in, uh, <laughs> in Oregon. But, but we have to make selections and we have to make selections based on what we think you'll like. And what we do is we meet yearly and sometimes three times a year with some of the greatest book people that are around. They represent a lot of these publishers that you see in our bookstore. 
and I'll explain, and many of them are sales reps or representatives. Those are the, the terms that we use to explain who these people are. But I'll give you a perfect example of how it works. So I went to what's called Book Expo. Book Expo is an annual meeting where we visit with friends, but we also see stands in which books are displayed. And toward the end of one of the book expos, I ran into a friend of mine, and that's Emily Cook, who's with us today. And she turned me on to a book by a marvelous writer from a publisher that she represents named Heidi Sapinka. And it was called The Dictionary of Animal Languages. A, a remarkable book. If you haven't read it, you need to run out and get it. It's coming out in paperback really soon. And Emily will talk a little bit about that. So Emily turned me on to it. I read it. I loved it. We invited her to come down to Miami for the Miami Book Fair. And at the same time, Emily told me about her husband. Not Emily's husband, but Heidi's husband. Heidi's husband is Jason Logan, who did another remarkable book called Made in Ink. And to show you how generous Emily is, that book isn't even from one of the companies that she represents. I believe that was from Abrams, yes. if I'm not mistaken. And Jason has this, I mean, mind-blowing company called Toronto Ink Company. And he basically makes ink from urban materials in cities across the world. And in fact, he came down for the book fair as well. And when he and uh, Heidi came, I got to have coffee with Jason and Heidi. And Jason made an ink based on Miami. And I still have the bottle on my desk. I haven't tried to use it because I cherish it so much. But that's the way it works. It's worked. You know, I hear word of mouth. I sit down with someone like Emily and I go through catalogs or I go through sales reps catalogs. It's a really marvelous experience because what it does is it makes us book booksellers part of a tribe and we all know each other and we all respect each other. And so when Emily told me that she and her family were going to be visiting Key West, I said, Emily, I need to talk with you on The Literary Life because Emily represents three or four wonderful what we call small presses that have very big impacts. One is Coach House, one is Scribe, one is Icon, and one is Greystone. And I think that Emily has a lot to tell us. You will learn a lot from her and get a pencil because you will hear some amazing recommendations. Emily, welcome to Literary Life. I'm so happy to be here. First, tell me, how was Key West? Key West is beautiful. The books and books in Key West was the highlight. We got to go to the children's section where uh, all curated by Judy Bloom, and we left with a whole backpack of books. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yes. Um, no, Key West was lovely, and the drive was lovely too. Oh, it's I know the, going over the overseas highway is is unlike anything is magical. Else. Yeah, it's magical. magical. It's like you're driving in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So tell me, Emily, what do you do? What do I do? Well. I've always been, well, I think, first of all, I have to say, you're right. All of our friends in publishing are great. And I think the best people in publishing started as booksellers, as did I oh, when did I was 15. <laughs> Where did you work when you were 15? It's a little store called Oliver's Books in the Bay Area. It's not around anymore, very tragically, because and there was a fire next door to our uh, bookstore. And we shared a skylight with like a paint your own ceramic place. And they broke through our skylight to get into the to put out the fire. So oh. we lost a lot of stock, but um, where in the Bay area was in that? Marin County, San Anselmo, it was new and used, but 
But like so many other publishing people, I started as a bookseller and then I got into the indie publishing world. And I'm passionate about indie publishers and small presses because I think we often find the best voices first. We often find the fringe voices that the big houses don't know they want to be publishing yet. We don't like it when the bigger houses poach authors from us, but it always happens. <laughs> and often authors will go to, say, Random House and then come back to the press that they started with. Why is that? What is the service that you provide that some of the bigger publishers can't? I think we have sort of a higher touch with our authors. So we, we're more involved with them. We're more involved with what they want on a daily basis. I mean, I think there's a lot of author therapy that we provide <laughs> that maybe the big houses don't have time to do. In the case of Coach House, I think a lot of Canada's Big authors will come back to Coach House because Alana Wilcox, who runs the press and is the main editor-in-chief, she is such a fine editor. She can provide like an edit in a way that maybe the editors at big houses don't have time to do. Well, what's interesting, I mean, Coach House is a perfect example. So Coach House is not, Coach House is from Toronto, right? Right. So it's not an American publisher, it's mm -hmm. a Canadian publisher. That's right. And when you publish a book through Coach House, I assume that they retain American rights. So they retain yes. English language rights. Yes, exactly. So all of the presses we work with, you know, as you know, you've been around for a long time. So you around know. The block, okay. <laughs> around the block. Around the block. So many of these overseas publishers used to, or like up in, in Canada, they used to sell rights and they would make a lot of money selling rights for their books. And the trend in the last 10 years is that it's harder and harder to sell rights. So they are distributing their books in the U.S. and publishing them on their own. And that's what Coach House Books has been doing for about 10 years. So yeah, Coach, so Coach House mm -hmm. is in Canada. Mm -hmm. Scribe is in Australia. Melbourne, yes. In Melbourne. And London. They have a London office. They do have a mm -hmm. London office. And the other two are where? Icon is based in London and Greystone is based in Vancouver. And because they're smaller presses, they can't afford an office in the U.S., our idea for what we're doing, our company's called Cursor, came out of the time that I spent working at Granta when I was part of the, I was like one third of the U.S. office. We had a U.S. office in Morgan Enterkin's closet. <laughs> That's a joke for Mitchell, but like Morgan runs Grove Press and they gave us- and He's a, got a very big closet. Yeah, a very nice big closet <laughs> <laughs> that we ran the Granta U.S. office out of for a few years. And tell, tell our listeners what Granta is. Granta, I think, is one of the best literary magazines in the world, certainly one of the oldest, let's say, English-speaking world. And they have been based in London for a long time. And they're especially well-known because they often do the best, well, they've now done the best of U.S. up-and-coming novelists, but they traditionally have done the best U.K. novelist lists. And they've predicted great careers. Like, I mean, I think virtually everybody you think of, like Zadie Smith or Ian McCune. Yeah, it goes both. Ian McCune. I remember mm -hmm. when their very first issue of like the hot authors under 35 was Ian McCune and Julian Barnes. Yes, Julian Barnes, <laughs> you know? exactly. It was Michael yeah. Andaje. It was yeah. like all yeah. of these writers who are no longer 35. That's right. Old. And they never drop that from their bios. You know, it's a great right. <laughs> feather in their cap. So, so mm -hmm. this begs the question. Let's talk. I love talking about literary history and I love it. So let's talk a little bit about before you join this partnership. And I think you have a partner in this too, yes. right? Yeah. My um, business partner is Richard Nash, Colson Whitehead 
dedicated, dedicated his, his recent book, book to, him. to Richard. And we um, can talk about that a little bit later. But, yeah. but mm-hmm. so tell me where you were. You were at Granta. And where were Granta. you before Granta? Before Granta, well, I started um, running a literary festival in Chicago. The Great the, Printer's Row oh, Book did Fair. Did you really do that? I didn't realize that. Yes. So you we, must know Mary. Yeah. So I took, I was Mary Davis Fournier's intern. We talked about that. Yes. I think. And Mary used to work for you. Mary was a bookseller for me when her husband was in graduate school at the University of Miami School of Music. And then she came to work for us at the Miami Book Fair. Right. And then she mm-hmm. went to work for a, a, a kind of alternative weekly called The New Times That's as right. well. Yeah. And then yeah. she moved back home where she's from. Which back is to Chicago. Chicago. And she ran this book fair. And then I interned for her for a year. And she went to work at the American Library Association. And I took over for a few years. And then I worked at Milkweed Editions, which is a great indie publisher. In Minneapolis. Out of, yeah, yeah, out of Minneapolis, as you know. Minneapolis and St. Paul have a great burgeoning little um, literary press scene. Actually, it's more than small now. It's gotten to be, I think, the second best place to be in publishing in the country. You'll get a kick out of this when we mm-hmm. first started. Yeah. I, uh, I thought that I was stumbling on something so unique. <laughs> and I had been at a, I forget where, but I ran into Alan, uh, and I'm blanking on his last name, Alan, who's Corn no longer alive, Alan yeah. Cornbluth. Mm-hmm. Who, and his, his press at the mm-hmm. time was called Toothpaste Press. Oh. <laughs> and then it morphed into Coffeehouse yeah. Press. And now he's pu- they're publishing some wonderful poetry and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other great stuff, too. Yeah. yeah they're and they're from great. Minneapolis. Yes. And Alan used to come to the very first book fairs mm-hmm. with, his, um, with his printing press, with his letter press. Mm-hmm. And he used to do broadsides for people on demand. Yeah. It was great. Yeah, he was great. Yeah. So you let so you stayed in Minneapolis because that's where you live now, right? That's right. Stayed in Minneapolis and worked uh, worked for Milkweed and then worked for Granta for a while and worked on a book for a while after that and <laughs> which I'm still working on and <laughs> and then I started this company with my business partner. And how long have you been doing that for now? Wow, we're coming up to three years. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. and you've done you've brought books to people's attention that mm-hmm. normally would be not ignored but just might fall through the cracks. right you always run that risk with indie presses that and even within a list of an indie publisher i think the greatest thing about the presses i work for is that we aren't always focused on having a lead title i think that you can easily get lost if you're a writer and you've worked so hard on your book i do feel like every writer deserves a real chance for their book. And what we specialize in doing is really trying to find the right, uh, you know, sort of the right river for each book to flow through. It might not be a publicity river. It might be a bookseller river, for instance. Um, So do you then, what, what is a typical day like? You go through the list, you try to figure out a strategy for each book. Mm -hmm. So you actually work as their marketing and promotion and sales departments here in the United States. We do, you, do all of it. I mean, for Scribe, you set up sales representation for them, right? Here? We work through. I mean, this is like insider stuff, but of course, we they, we We're only work with publishers. Stuff. Yeah, who are with Publishers Group West or Consortium, which I think are two of the best distributors in the country for small presses or bigger presses. I mean, 
certainly Publishers Group West has a lot of pretty big publishers on their list. And we were always reading a few seasons ahead. And with Scribe especially, we really work to shape their list for the U.S. market. We work with all of our publishers to do that in some ways. But with Scribe especially, what one thing we are doing is that we're really focusing on their translations or we're really focusing on their their female writers. For a while, we had a no white men <laughs> allowed <laughs> rule, but we do have one that slipped in for this spring season. As a up. white man, I'm beginning to, when, and what's, what's happening with our president, I'm beginning to want that rule to happen again. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you think about what it is like to publish with, say, Penguin Random House, as a woman writer, you can be relegated to what they call the mid-list, which can be a sort of career killer. Um, but Scribe loves to, and they stand behind debut female authors, mid-career and late career. So for instance, we have a book. I read it. I had the only copy in North America. Um, Henry Rosenblum, the publisher of Australia, brought me an advanced reading copy from Melbourne to Winter Institute in Albuquerque. <laughs> and I read that on the plane to the American Library Association show in Seattle, and I loved it. And I handed that to my old editor at Booklist, and three weeks later, she said she'd assigned it for a review, and it got a star. Which book is that? It's called Invented Lives, Andrea Goldsmith. And what is it about? And it's about, it takes place in the 80s. It's about a young woman whose mother has just died, and she's in Russia. She's Jewish, and Gorbachev is, is just coming into power, and she and her mother have been trying to emigrate. And she decides to do it even though her mother isn't with her. And on one of her last days in, I think it's Moscow, she runs into this sweet, very shy Australian man who's a mosaic artist. And they sort of have one of those meet cute moments. And she doesn't, you know, I think she gets his information, but it's not really supposed to be a thing. But then she runs into him again once she's immigrated to Melbourne. She's also a children's illustrator. And, you know, what's interesting is we think of them in this country, maybe when you compare them to Penguin Random House or Harper as smaller presses. But when you go to Australia, mm -hmm. which I did once, I was invited by the Australian Booksellers Association, mm -hmm. and I, I was it was in Melbourne, and I actually went to the offices of Scribe. Mm -hmm. You just realize the mm -hmm. prominence that they have within Australia. Scribe yeah. is yeah. an extremely prominent, well-respected mm -hmm. press in Australia. Yeah, Henry started as a political journalist, and he his father had a printing business. So his father kept saying, when are you going to take over the family business? So he did for a while, but then I think it was on the eve of his 50th birthday, he thought, if I don't do this publishing thing now, I'm never going to do it. So 30 years later, Scribe is, I think like, I, th I like to compare them to FSG, but maybe the FSG of 15 years ago, they're doing just a lot of great political books, a lot of they're re he's really passionate to social justice issues. And he highlights a lot of Australian writers as well. A lot well. of Australian writers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is really great. And First Nation Australian writers. Yes. And they have a kids in print, which is coming out in the fall. That's with great. this amazing children's book called All the Ways to Be Smart. It's just beautifully. They, oh, tell me about that. Well, they care so much about printing because they were a printing business. And his daughter runs their children's imprint, Miriam Rosenblum. And she was a designer first. And in Australia, they don't really have sort of design forward children's books. I think they're a lot like Enchanted Lion. 
I love enchanted. Me lion too. Books. Me too. And all the ways to be smart is a rhyming, sweet little book about all the ways you can be smart as a kid. Smart at checking boxes and making paper airplanes and <laughs> different things like that. But it's it's a nice sort of message for kids. And the printing is gorgeous. It's saturated color. Our friend Jason Logan would love it because he's the ink guy. It's the, the ink in it is just beautiful. And um, their kids' books have a social justice sort of thread as well, which I love. Well, so then we move to Canada and there's mm-hmm. Coach House. Now, I remember Coach House because as an early, early bookseller, some of the only Haitian uh, fiction was being published by Coach House. Mm-hmm. There was a, a writer named Danny Laferrier who was published by Coach House mm-hmm. in the early, early, early days. I'm talking about in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And if we wanted to get those books, it was it was before consortium even. It was very difficult to get. Sure. But mm-hmm. we would try to carry his books. And, mm-hmm. and Coach House also publishes a lot of interesting, you know, Canadians. I know that they published Michael's, Michael and Dodge's books yeah. at one time, some of his poetry books at yeah. one point as well. So t- give me a little bit of a history of Coach House. Too. Well, Michael and Dodge and BP Nichols, Barry Nichols, were two of the original founders of Coach House. And they have, um, Stan is still running their sort of printing press part of it. So they print everything there at the coach house. They are in an old coach house. Oh, and are they really? Yeah. Oh, and I cute. think Michael and Dace and Barry Nichols were best friends. They were both poets at the time. They both did a Billy the Kid. Which did I did they each do a Billy they the Kid? They each did. So Barry Nichols <laughs> also wrote for Fraggle Rock, which is sort of a funny That's thing an to old say. Program, isn't <laughs> it, it is, but for people that are my generation that grew up on Fraggle Rock, it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what you're getting with Barry's work. Was that a Canadian program? I don't think it was Canadian. Um, But anyway, BP Nichols, that's the name he published under. Coach House just released his um, collected works. And I think you can get a really good sense of where Coach House started when you read, I mean, early Andace and this BP Nichols collection, because it's it's all really experimenting with that blurred line between poetry and... Well, and also because Toronto has always been very receptive to immigrants. Immigrant literature was also published quite significantly by Coach House. Yes, and about 20 years ago, Alana Wilcox took over as editor. So she publishes all of these fringe voices as well, or Saskia Vogel's book. I know Saskia was just on your podcast. Um, Her book is Permission. She's not Canadian, but I think it goes to show that Alana's really looking for books that fit her list, really feminist books that are... I think bigger houses aren't quite ready for yet. Um, Tamara uh, Faith Berger is another writer that they publish, and her book, Queen Solomon, is just, it's pushing against every edge. I mean, I would say she's like a Philip Pullman. Oh, I mean, me, not Philip Pullman, sorry, Philip Roth tell me, tell me of the more 21st century. Her. Tell me more about her. Yeah, and this book is just pushing every single boundary of race and sex. And I mean, if you think there's BDSM in Saskia's book, it's... I feel like reading Queen Solomon is an amazing experience, but you kind of need a cold <laughs> shower, <laughs> shower <after laughs> at the end of it. Um, her name is Queen. The name of the book is Queen Solomon. Queen Solomon. And her name is is Tamara Faith Berger. And it's out now. It's out now. And if you just want to see what a press like Coach House can do, 
I think that's a good example of something they're doing. Also, they had a book that came out 10 years ago called All My Friends Are Superheroes. <laughs> and it's a book that so many Canadians have given away at weddings. They've read from it during wedding ceremonies. I read it on the plane and I found myself like winsomely smiling at it as I finished it. I was just so touched by it. And now 10 years later, he has the new one coming out called The Ticking Heart, which is like the brutal divorce book. <laughs> Nobody can write the way this guy, Andrew Kaufman, can write. And he's just taking things that are in our real world and making this rich sort of metaphor out of it. In fact, in Ticking Heart, the main character is um, in a car. There's a poof of pu purple smoke, and he ends up in a land called Metaphoria. Somebody rips out his heart and replaces it with a ticking like bomb. A bomb. <laughs> yes. Wow. And um, in Metaphoria, everybody you've ever had an intimate encounter with shows up in beautiful cursive script on your back, like a tattoo. I mean, it could be like a searing moment in an elevator. It doesn't have to have been a really intimate moment. But um, but it's just such a, a crazy book to read. It just and really gets to heartbreak. When That'll be out this fall. So then there's Greystone. And then there's Greystone. Greystone is where? Greystone's in Vancouver, and they've always done books about the natural world. I've known them for a long time because they did one of my best uh, friend's books. She's an archaeologist, but she wrote a book about mermaids. <laughs> but they're, it's like a, a beautiful sort of more serious book about mermaid legends from around the world. So I've always loved Greystone, but now they're really on the map because they published The Hidden Life of Trees, which I'm sure you've sold I hope you have sold tons Gazillions of, yeah. of them. <laughs> yes. Um, and they have a great new book coming out this fall called The Hidden, I'm sorry, no, The Hidden Life. See, this is really hard to do with Peter Volaben, the German forester. Once you get his titles in your mind, you keep recycling But it's called them. The Hidden Life. No, no, no. It's called um, How to Catch a Mole. Oh, and it's by this Welsh sort of troubadour, vagabond guy who's a poet and I think he was kicked out of his parents' house as a teenager, and he was sort of living on the land, and he became a landscape worker, basically, and he learned the secret art of catching, moles. catching and killing moles. But at the beginning of the book, he vows <clears throat> to never kill a mole again, and then so just catch and release, catch and release, or some variation of that. Um, but that's what Greystone does. Typically, they do these books that. You just think, why would I ever want to learn about moles? And then it turns out you do. You do want to learn everything you can know about moles and the way they interact in the natural world and the way they dig their tunnels and what they do to gardens. And um, yeah, it's just one of those books like no other, which Greystone is very good at doing. I think right now we all need to read more books about the natural world and to know how everything really is connected due to you know what we're doing in terms of climate change and, and this little book about moles. <laughs> We have lots of mole puns going on too. So you ask what a typical day is like in our office. It's probably coming up with more mole puns than you <laughs> would care to know about. So the other one, the other publisher that you work with is Icon. Icon, well. yeah. They're they're known for doing a lot of these great graphic guides. So they have one on queer theory. It's this sort of larger format book that in graphic form. Is teaches, it like a graphic novel dealing yeah. with it? Yeah, well, it teaches you about queer theory. And I love to give this to, I think I'm I'm at the age where I have, um, like this is too much information maybe, but I was like the, the supreme babysitter when I was 12 until I was 19 or something. So I'm still in touch with a lot of those families and they have a lot of children who are 
deciding to use they pronouns or coming out as trans or whatnot in this book, Queer, I love to give to all of those parents because it really helps them understand why, how to approach queer theory, how to police their own language, um, and how to really embrace, I think, some of even Judith Butler's theories, which are harder for people to understand. Yeah, so Icon does that, but they also did an amazing book on women's soccer. It came out in paperback a year ago, but it's been on my mind, of course, this whole summer. And do they focus on the American team as well? Well, they do. Her name is Gwendolyn Oxenham, and she is American. Icon often does American writers because one of their amazing young editors, her name is Kira, she grew up partly in Miami. So she has this great U.S. focus. uh, And where are they located? They're located in London. In London. And they do a lot of science books. They're a great place to go. I I like to say they give the Radiolab treatment to hard to understand ideas. So they, they will, their editors will seek out things on, you know, whatever the hot science topic is right now, or AI or things like that, CERN and, and sort of. Do they sell some of their rights to us publishers? Some of these folks? They do. They do sometimes. So we may Mm -hmm. find an icon book being involved in a, you know, HarperCollins or somewhere else. Exactly. As well. Exactly. But in the case of the soccer book, the editor, you know, every editor likes to have their great story behind how they found a book. And this woman, Gwendolyn Oxenham, was one of the fir- youngest women to play for Duke. Oh, wow. And then after she graduated, it was so hard for her to figure out how to be a professional soccer player. And so she made an amazing documentary going around the world looking for pickup games, which of course becomes a very political thing once you delve into it. And the this young editor at Icon approached her to do a book about women's soccer. And she takes different women players from around the world, and she tells the story of how they got into soccer, what led them there. One is a refugee um, in Denmark. Another one is an American player who gets enticed. She just wants to keep playing and she has her eye on the Olympic team, but she ends up going to Russia and they keep giving her what they say are vitamin shots. And of course they're not. And so it's really, it goes into this whole sort of Russian scandal thing. I learned so much. Is that book out now? It is out. It's called Under the Lights and in the Dark. And I didn't think I was a sports writing fan, but I this has totally turned me into somebody Under that's the passionate about women's and soccer. Into the Sun by... Under the Lights and in the Dark by Gwendolyn Oxenham. Under the Lights and in the Dark mm-hmm. by Gwendolyn Oxenham. Mm-hmm. Well, I can, you know, hearing the excitement in your voice, that excitement is then transferred to people like me and our staff. I know you have close relationships with so many members of our staff that because of you, I mean, I can actually say this, because of you, we have been able to bring these books into the store where we wouldn't normally have done that. I mean, you know, the way it works from our perspective as buyers is that we see a catalog and usually the catalog like consortium, as you know, has Mm -hmm. probably a thousand titles in it. Sure. And you Mm -hmm. turn the page and you turn the page and you turn the, oh, that's one of Emily's books. (laughs) All right. We're going to get, bring it in because Emily has amazing taste. (laughs) So what has that done? You know, seeing all of these books on such unusual subjects, what has that done? How has that broadened your own horizons in terms of understanding the immensity of writing that goes on? Well, I think, you know, this is a hot trend right now anyway among a lot of presses like Europa, for instance. I, I do love reading works in translation. 
And I think that I'm passionate about also translations for children, you know, getting children's books in translation. I feel like we just, Americans can be so myopic. <laughs> I grew up, you know, my father um, took us to see his family in Australia all the time when I was a kid. So I do remember like watching Australian news and just thinking it's so different from American news. Um, but now I, I really feel the weird part of all the books that we deal with that I find ha has really changed my mindset are actually these little translations from Quebec that Coach House Press does. Because I, there's a way that you just think any French translation you're going to enjoy reading, but it's going to be this very French aesthetic. But it turns out the Quebec aesthetic yes. is just completely wild and different. Right. Um, so that's that's one thing that I, I love. I think also when Greystone does these books, they, they often do translations too that are about the natural world. And I think reading the way other people around our globe are thinking about climate change is... It's just a, such an important counterweight to what and how we talk about climate change in our country. And the irony is, although many of your presses do have books in translation, mm -hmm. what you're basically doing is also translating the English world, the English language world, for those of us in America, by bringing in books that are written in English mm -hmm. that might be from a different perspective, mm -hmm. and yet we are reading the same language, yet the experiences are so very different from one another. They're so different. I have a really good example about that. Give me that example. <laughs> it's a book that just came out called Among the Lost, Emiliano Monge. He's one of Mexico City's sort of hot writers. He's obsessed with Joyce. He throws a Bloomsday party every year on June 16th in Mexico City. And um, this is the second book of his to be translated into English, but it was done by a very well-known translator, an Irish translator named Frank Wynne. But again, this, this book takes place on the border. It's very an important book for right now, right? It takes place on the border, and it's a, a tragic love story between two traffickers. And you soon realize they've lost each other, that they were both once trafficked themselves. So he's using Dante. They're stuck in a sort of inferno. It's incredible. It's very bleak. And when we first read it, there were a lot of um, bullocks and um, blooming and <laughs> different different sort of British slang words. And we were like, oh, my God, no, we cannot do. So who handles the editing? So we do. That's you the do nice thing is that we we worked with Scribe and we said we cannot have a book that takes place in Mexico. Let's just mostly we should bring all the slang back into the original Mexican because that will really work in the U.S. And um, we're so lucky we have a, a woman that works with us. Her name is Caitlin, and she's a translator from the French. She didn't exactly feel... Uh, you know, comfortable translating from the Spanish, but she went through with her translator's editing eye on, and she was able to capture all the bullocks and bring them to back to the original Mexican, and it really works. So, but we had a funny situation. We had advanced reading copies that were in the original British translation, so we had to sort of give a key with that when we sent it out to to do publicity. When is that for book, book coming out? It's just out. It's just out. Yeah. Give me the title of it Among again. the Lost. And by... Emiliano Monge, M-O-N-G-E. And he lives in Mexico City. He lives in Mexico City. Oh, we'll have to get him here to Miami. I would love yes. it. Yes. In I fact, I think we're, we're going to see if we can get him to your festival. That would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So, Colson was here a couple nights ago, and I noticed in the book when I read it, that he dedicates it to Richard Nash, who I know to be your partner, mm -hmm. your business partner. Tell me about that friendship. 
Well, Richard used to run Soft Skull Press, which now comes out of Counterpoint, and they do. In fact, they're they're redoing a lot of the books that he originally published. I love Soft Skull. Me too. And he he has a great little thing where he says he felt like his job at Soft Skull was to have his writers come and tell him what they should be doing, right. which is not the way most publishers work. Most publishers have piles and piles and piles and piles of manuscripts and um, you sort of curate your list based on that but soft school was great because it was and just they such were a also, hodgepodge and they were exploring the edges as well D- definitely the edges and um, did Richard Colson is- write for him? no but so they knew each other Colson, Kevin Young and Richard Nash uh, all went to college together to Harvard and they became best friends way back then uh, So that's so mm-hmm. interesting they I have mean, their little trio <laughs> yeah no I love I love hearing about those yeah. connections because there are a lot of them yes uh, there are. a lot of them mm-hmm. Emily this has been an absolute delight to have you on the literary life you've been someone that we at books and books value and think of as a friend And I don't know what we would do without you because we would be losing out on so much great literature. I'm going to end by asking you if there's one book we should be looking out for in the next couple seasons um, without putting you on the spot. There is is a book. Is there Mm -hmm. one that really resonates that we should all be looking for? Okay, don't shoot me. When I tell you that the book I'm going to recommend is 950 pages long, it's called The Eighth Life. It's a Georgian book. The title is actually The Eighth Life, and then in parentheses, for Brilka. It's a family saga. It reminds me a little bit of A Suitable Boy. Do you uh, remember that one sure. from years so ago? So is it done in verse as well? It isn't done in verse, but it's the same kind of family saga where it's telling generations you know, right. um, of a story. And I think it's just unlike anything I've read. I'm not done with it yet, but I, it's, it was a very exciting translation story. And, Who's um, it written by? I can't remember her name. That's right quite now. a right. <laughs> <laughs> this is coming out, and I mean, it will be at least a year until it's printed in the U.S. But is it scribe or is it scribe? And that's that's a book I'm really looking forward to. Another one in the fall, if I could just say quickly, is um, is called Made in Sweden. So her last book, Elizabeth Asbrink, um, her last book was 1947, which I bet you have in the store yeah um she's swedish and she's taking down sweden in this book and it's really fun but the reason i think it's so great much like that book questions i'm asked about the holocaust that you are carrying that's great that is that is a remarkable book talk about that just real fast oh well um heidi heidi freed is the author of that book she survived auschwitz and she is a therapist a trained psychologist and she spent the last 30 years going in to talk to school children and this is just a very simple collection of all the questions they ask her and her very straightforward answers but it is a mind-blowing book i mean everything from do you see yourself in today's refugees i mean she they're talking you know do you consider yourself swedish she says she secretly does but she won't say that out loud because somebody always corrects her um, did you get your period while you were in Auschwitz? That answer is like completely different from what I would have expected. Uh, you have to read the book to find out why. <laughs> anyway, it's, well, a, it's a great book. But Made in Sweden is similar because it's really taking down, it's really looking at why, um, why you know, white nationalist parties are starting to gain momentum. That's really at the heart of it, what that book is about, and and Heidi's book as well. Those of you out there have an understanding of why I love doing what I do. 
because I get to meet with Emily Cooks of the world, and I get to learn about things that I knew nothing about. And I want to thank Emily for being on The Literary Life. And you can hear us uh, on LitHub or wherever podcasts are, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Emily, it's really, really great. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 